Three years ago, I got to visit our fellow Anglican Christians in Jos, Nigeria. And when we landed at the airport, the woman who had been sent to pick us up just spontaneously exclaimed, Oh, we thank God today! And so I said, Oh, what are you thanking God for? And she said, Well, uh, there, she explained that at one of their Anglican churches there in Jos that morning, uh, two young men had come prepared to bomb that church and they had been discovered by some adults in the church who were kind of patrolling the perimeter and were turned over to the police, and the church was kept safe. So they were thanking God. And then at one of their other Anglican churches that morning, a young man had ridden up on a motorcycle, was about to throw a bomb into the sanctuary, and the bomb went off too early for him, unfortunately killing him, but thankfully leaving the entire congregation safe. Oh, we thank God today. That Tuesday morning was their usual weekly gathering of the pastors in that diocese. And whatever agenda they had planned was out the window, and the young pastor stood up in that meeting and they said, how long are we going to let them bomb our churches? How long are we going to let them burn down our stores? How long are we going to let them kill our relatives? When are we going to get back? If we turn another cheek, we will have no other cheek left. And the older pastors stayed seated and they said, we can't do that. How do Christians respond to persecution? If you'd been in the room that day and they'd asked you for counsel, what would you have said? Well, if we move from Africa to Europe, opposition to Christian belief looks a little different. I visited uh, Serbia a couple years before that, and uh, there in Serbia, if you are a church and you want to do something like, say, open a bank account, buy land for your church, publish some literature, become tax-exempt. If you want any of those things, you have to register with the government. You go, well, what's wrong with that? Well, the registration means you turn over to the government the name of every person who's attending your services, their ID number, and you tell them exactly where all your money came from. Well, when this uh, decree from the government came down, it split the nation's leading group of evangelical pastors right down the middle. And some of the evangelical pastors there in Serbia said, what's the deal? It's not that big of a thing. These are our God-constituted authorities over us, and all they're asking us to do is register. And the other group of pastors there said, are you crazy? Do you realize that they, what are they going to do with information like this? Do you realize how this impinges our religious freedom? If we give in here, where will it stop? How do Christians handle resistance to our faith? If you were there in Serbia, what would you tell them? And now we come closer to home to North America, where resistance to Christian belief takes even a different kind of aspect. And there are so many illustrations I could use, but let me use one that maybe touches a little closer to home, because it affects a Christian college very much like the one right here in Wheaton. If you've been following the news, you know that in July, President Obama signed an executive order saying that any federal contractor may not uh, make any hiring decisions on the basis of sexual orientation. And so in advance of that executive order, since it was known that this was going to be coming forth, a group of Christian leaders including Michael Lindsay, the president of Gordon, Conwell, uh, Gordon College, excuse me, just outside of Boston, 
sent a letter to the president saying, as you draft and craft your executive order, we would ask that you be sure to protect religious freedom and and freedom of of speech and freedom of association and so that this executive order in no way compromises that. That didn't happen. What did happen was that the press discovered that Michael Lindsay had had the gall to write a letter to the president asking for this, and so immediately the mayor of the town of Salem, which had contracted with Gordon College to run their historic town hall museum, terminated the contract. The city of Lynn, Massachusetts, where for 11 years Gordon College students have been volunteering in their public schools, shut down that program. We can't have volunteers like this helping school children learn if they're going to be as noxious ideologically as this. And then, most serious of all, the New England Association of Schools and Colleges, when they met at their meeting in September, put on the agenda, should we continue to accredit Gordon College? Now, thankfully, Michael Lindsay, being a smart leader as he is, asked for time, and they granted him that. So now the college has 12 months to review their policies. But based on a published statement that I read, if they come back and still have in their lifestyle code for students a prohibition on homosexual behavior, that is not going to be accreditable. And you say to yourself, what happens to a college in trying to attract students and faculty and donations when it is no longer accredited? That's the shape it's taking in our day and in our time. And friends, this is a wake-up call. If you look globally at the instances of religious or faith-based discrimination, oppression, resistance, and so on, 80% of the time, the people on the receiving end of that stick are Christians. And so we need to know, how do we handle this? What is the way forward? And thankfully, every major voice in the New Testament prepares us for this moment. Jesus said very clearly, remember, if they hate you, they hated me first. The Apostle John says, don't be surprised when the world hates you. That should not be news. And 1 Peter, this letter that we've been studying, the entire letter was drafted by the Apostle to help us with this. And I don't know if there could be a better person to pastor us through this than Peter. Peter is a guy who's been arrested because of his faith. He's been interrogated because of his faith. He's been beaten because of his faith. He's been jailed because of his faith. So when he says something to us about how to handle resistance to our faith, this is not some nice idea he just thought up in his study. This is the will of God that's been run through his life. He's lived it. He's bled it. And he says, I've tried it. This is what you must do. I want us to look at that together. And as we do this morning, I have two goals. The first, honestly, is to raise our readiness. If there is still anyone among us who would still have kind of a vision for the comfortable suburban life, I hope that will be shaken off this morning and that we will gain a new sort of readiness and preparedness and sobriety. But my greater goal is that we would lower our fear, that we'd be so taught by the apostles speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we would be able to approach our Christian lives together without anxiety and without fear. Let's look at it together. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. As Bishop Stewart's already mentioned, Peter writes his letter to Christians who are under pressure 
And you can see signs of it here in verse 9. Peter says, don't repay evil for evil. That's because evil things are being done to them. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. That's what's happening. People are insulting them. Look over at verse 14 toward the end. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. They're being threatened, these Christians that Peter's writing to. And finally, in verse 16, if people speak against you because they are. So these Christians are suffering evil and insults and threats and people speaking against them. And what does Peter do? What does he tell them to do to handle this? Well, as as Pastor Matt mentioned last week, in, in tough situations, we all tend toward fight or flight, don't we? We all tend to lash back or maybe leave our faith. And Peter says, no, there's, there's another way. And, and he gives us two very clear instructions. The first one is no retaliation. Peter's first word, and it's hard to believe, but let's take it in from someone who's been there, is no retaliation. Verse 9, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That's what God's called you to do, and he'll bless you for it. Now, I don't know of many cultures where this would be more countercultural than ours. In movie after movie after movie, the movie doesn't even get exciting until the hero gets revenge. The movie doesn't even become emotionally satisfying. The plot doesn't even make sense until the hero gets revenge on that evil person who abducted his daughter or whatever, whatever. And we cheer when the revenge is inflicted. And in part, that's a good sense of justice being done. But in another way, there's something a little bloodthirsty in that. And so when Peter says, no, don't retaliate, we go, yeah, yeah, that's nice. That's pious. No, he's meaning it. He's meaning do not retaliate. That is not the way forward. And as authority for that, uh, he quotes scripture. Uh, he quotes Psalm 34 in verses 10, 11, 12. That's a quotation from Psalm 34, which incidentally is a song David wrote when he was on the run from the government for not having done anything wrong. And he, he especially wants us to look at verse 12. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. What he's saying is, when evil's done to you, the one thing you cannot do as a Christian is become as evil as they are. That's not okay. In your response to injustice, don't become as unjust as those are, those folks are who are treating you like this. That's not available to you. When Archbishop Ben from Joss was here a year ago for Bishop Stewart's consecration, I asked him, I said, Archbishop, how do you handle the young men in Joss who want to retaliate? And he paused and he said, this is very difficult. He almost groaned. He said, when we tell them that as Christians we do not retaliate, some of them say, then we are no longer Christians, and they go out and do violence. And Peter's saying, that is off the table. That is not an option for you. He learned this from Jesus Matthew 5, his own teachers taught him, I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
but it goes even deeper than that. Perhaps some very noble-minded person might be able to get to the point of not retaliating and paying back evil for evil. But Jesus teaches, and Peter teaches, teaching from the teachings of Jesus, not just not retaliate, actually bless them. Pay back with a blessing. Look at that in verse 9. 1 Peter 3, 9. Pay them back with a blessing. Is there a hostile person in your life, maybe a relative, who digs at you when you're together at the holiday? Maybe somebody at work who's on you, kind of needles you. Maybe it's playful. Maybe it's not so playful. How could you bless them? You can certainly bless them with prayer, which is a great blessing. Pray for God's favor on their life. Pray for God to enlighten their hearts. But maybe there's some way, may it have to be secretly, in which you can actually give them some kind of blessing, a gift, something that they would value. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? But Peter says, no retaliation. If you give that person anything, you give them a blessing. That's the way of Jesus. That's the way of the scriptures. And that's the way through persecution. Well, that's his instructions to those of us who want to fight is no retaliation. But he also gives a word to those of us who want to flight. And in my read of Christians today, that's the majority. The majority are not so much wanting to lash back, they're afraid. And here's what he says as his second instruction. Let's look at verse 14. Don't worry or be afraid of their threats. In other words, no fear. If Peter's first instruction is, no retaliation, all you who want to fight, his word to those of us who want to flight and shut down and kind of hide and pretend that maybe we aren't that outspoken and all that is no fear. No retaliation and no fear. Look at this in verse 14. He says, don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Now, I don't think Peter means you'll never feel worry or never feel afraid. That's why he says, don't worry. What he's saying is, don't give into it. Don't live in the fear and the anxiety of what mental energy in, oh, this could happen to me, this could happen to me. This is, I think, this advice of, of don't worry, don't live in fear is actually just as hard for us as don't retaliate. Is it not? I mean, some of you, you're prophetically gifted. And for some time now, you've been looking at the storm clouds gathering on the horizon of our culture. And you say, there's some lightning strikes in those clouds. And you worry for your children or the children of this church. Some of you are licensed therapists. You're like, I don't know how much longer I will continue to be able to be licensed. Some of you work in school settings where your faith is beginning to rub against policies and official things that are coming down as to how you practice as an educator. Some of you are in business, and you saw, you saw, didn't you, when the CEO of Mozilla, Brendan Eich, years ago donated to support Prop 8, a radical proposition that defined marriage as between one man and one woman, when that was discovered, he was ridden out of his company. He was the CEO. And you say, whoa, I get it. I'm going to shut down. I'm going to withdraw. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to take stuff off my bulletin board. I'm, whoa. And Peter says, no. And here's why we must not give in to that kind of fear and worry is because it shuts down witness. Look at verse 15. If someone asks about your Christian hope, 
always be ready to explain it. Peter's saying this to people who are like, I don't know what this person's asking for. Maybe they're asking to find me out. Maybe they call the police. Who knows what they do? And Peter says, don't worry about that. Don't you give in to fear. You witness, you give witness to your faith. This is the same advice that, that Jesus gave. He said, don't worry about those who be threatened. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of, of those. Now, this is a very personal thing for me. Not only because I pray multiple times a week for our friends in Joss. The, what they're going undergoing has names and faces for me. But more to the point, I, I'm what they call a directional leader on some of those inventories, and I have seen the direction of trend line after trend line in our culture. And I have observed with growing concern that, uh, that there is very likely to be, and I'm not a prophet, but there's very likely to be a future here for Christians in this country where we've enjoyed such a long run of peace and, and acceptance, a greater uh, uh, acts of, be, of us being marginalized, of us attempting to be silenced, of us being de-licensed and de-accredited and shut out and so forth. And, and I know that as a pastor, I need to lead bravely through this. And that sobered me. And then I, I had a prophetic intimation one day in worship here uh, that as a pastor, calling all of you to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord, that I might have to ask you to make sacrifices that are profound, that, that are so great they make any generosity initiative look like child's play. And that weighed on me. And I just got heavier and heavier earlier this year in January and February. And it wasn't just the weather. I was getting weighed down and oppressed as I, as I looked forward and as I thought of all this. Well, in March, we had our clergy retreat for the clergy in the diocese and there was a time for sharing, and the Holy Spirit was present. And finally, I was just so troubled. I just said, look, would you all just pray for me, please? I can't explain it, but I'm just weighed down by the thought of, of the hostility that's growing in our culture toward Christians and, and how I will be able to lead through this. And, and they gathered around and they prayed for me, and, and I began to feel that, that heaviness lift, and I, I began to get the, the hope and the, the breath of the Holy Spirit back in my lungs and, and one of the people there gave me a great verse from Hebrews 11. And, and here's what it says. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Well, Noah for sure was warned properly by God. I don't know if my vision of the possible future direction is right or not, but Noah did. And so what did he do about that? Did he shut down? Did he give up? Did he move? No. In reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. He got to work. He went on the offensive. He said, if this is true, if it's going to get harder, then I'm going to use every moment that's available to me right now to construct an art. I'm getting boards, I'm getting nails, I'm getting hammers, and we're getting this thing together. And I began to pray about, Lord, what ark can I help to construct in my life? And some of you may know that in art history, in Christianity, the church is very often symbolized as an ark. You can see that if you go out and look at the paintings on our narthex wall. And I thought, okay, I get it. Instead of shutting down in fear and weight and oppression and heaviness, I'm going on the offensive. And all of a sudden, I came into this pulpit with a greater sense of urgency than I have ever had because I've said, if time is short, we are going to lay in biblical foundations that will not move. We are going to build this church on bedrock. And I went to our men's leaders and I said, men's leaders, you know what? I no longer care about how many guys show up. 
The only number I care about is how many are going to stand up when pressure comes. They said, that's our heart too. We want to forge men of iron. I said, you go for it. And if three guys show up and they turn out to be iron-souled men, we've succeeded. Friends, what is it that you could do that you could go on the offensive now? Instead of shutting down, withdrawing, pulling back, and giving in to fear, you could start to build right now an ark. You could build a safe place for the people in your workplace. You could build some sort of financial uh, place where people can be helped if they need it. You, you start to share the gospel in creative ways. We go on the offensive and we don't shut down. No retaliation, no fear. Now, you go, yeah, but does that strategy work? Or do we just end up with not many Christians? And Peter says, would you look at the example of Jesus Christ? He turns, look at verse 18. He says, Christ suffered, just like you're suffering. He never sinned, just like you didn't do anything wrong to get this coming your way. And he even suffered more than you. He suffered physical death. Do you see that in verse 18? But here's the point Peter wants to make. Even if that were to happen, the worst were to happen, he was raised to life in the spirit. And verse 22, and now Christ has gone to heaven. He's seated in the place of honor next to God and all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. And what is he saying? He's saying, no matter what happens, your future is one, if you are faithful to Jesus Christ, where you'll be raised to life and honor and authority in the presence of God. That's your future. That's your example. Now, along the way, Peter touches verses 19 through 21 on what scholars call the most difficult passage in the New Testament. He went and preached to the spirits, who are those, in prison. Where's that? It's so difficult that Martin Luther, that towering genius of biblical studies, said, I'm not sure what Peter's saying. And so if Martin Luther wasn't, I'm not. But I want to tell you, uh, give you some help with these verses right here because I think they say something very important to us about how we handle persecution. There's been 18 major theories brought forth about these verses, and I'm going to give you the two that I think deserve our attention the most. The first theory is what might be called the descent into hell theory. And stay with me just a moment, and I'll bring this around to our point for this morning. In the descent into hell theory, the spirits are considered people who have died without having had the chance to hear the gospel. That's the spirits. And the prison, in, in this reading of it, is the underworld, or the world of the dead. And so what Peter is therefore saying in, in, in verse 18 is he suffered physical death but was raised to life in the spirit, and he went and preached to the spirits in prison. What is he saying? After Jesus died on Good Friday, he descended to the world of the dead. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, the gospel was preached to the dead. And that, so that must be what he's referring to here. And he gives them a chance to hear the gospel. Now, if that is Peter's meaning, what is he saying? Death can't stop Jesus. You kill him, the gospel still gets preached. You kill him and this message of salvation still goes forward. It goes to places he couldn't get to before that happened. 
And what he's saying is you, you might be facing even death, some of you. That won't stop the gospel. They can't stop Jesus and they can't stop Jesus in you. So don't worry about death is what Peter's message is. Now, the second possible way of interpreting this, interpreting this is not the descent into hell view. It's the ascent into heaven view. And t- for this to make sense to you, you would need to understand a little bit of the Hebrew mind. In the Hebrew mind, there were levels in heaven. And that's why Paul says in one place, I was caught up to the third heaven, the heaven of heavens, the, the most elite air of heaven where God himself dwells in glory. But there were other levels of heaven as well, and that apparently in some of those lower levels, it is possible for fallen angels to reside however constrained or imprisoned they are. And which is why you see both in Job and Revelation, Satan coming and uh, saying something in heaven. And so in this view, the spirits are fallen angels, angels who were created good and then fell in their rebellion against God, and the prison is one of the lower levels of heaven, where they are sort of kept in chains or imprisoned. And so the meaning of this is, if you'll turn to 3.18, he suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. After Jesus was raised, then he went, see how that fits the order here in the text, after he was raised to life on Easter Sunday and ascended into heaven, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. What is he preaching to them? He's declaring, basically would be a better word than preached here, he's declaring, you lost, I won. The will of God has been done, and my victory is assured, which would fit with verse 22, now Christ has gone to heaven, he's seated in the place of honor, and all the angels and authorities and powers, even the rebellious ones, accept his authority. If this is Peter's reading, and honestly, I don't know for sure, what is he saying? Not only can death not stop Jesus, the demons can't stop Jesus. The demonic influence that is animating your persecutors and causing them to have this irrational hostility against peaceable people, that can't stop the work of Jesus Christ. Even if the worst happens, Jesus will be seated on the throne in victory and you will be seated there with him if you stay faithful to him. Death can't stop him. Demons can't stop him. Now, friends, this has been a sobering text. It's taken me two years of prayer to get to this morning. But I want to bring you some good news. The first good news is that we do not have to become evil to to resist evil. We do not have to sully our own conscience and become unjust. We have a way in Jesus to not do that. And the second good news is, no matter what happens... We follow the the trajectory of Jesus Christ, who, though he suffered, was raised to life, honor, glory, and authority forever. And that's our path. The week after I left Joss, it was the national election, and because a Christian became president, there were 350 churches across Nigeria that were attacked, and many were burned to the ground. One of the churches that was burned to ground in Joss was a Baptist church, and the attackers also burned down the house of the pastor, a man named Sunday Gomna. Ten days later, the church finally kind of reassembled for the first time after the fire, and they were meeting in a community center there with mud walls. And Pastor Gomna stood up and said this. He said, I am thankful today for three things. 
said, first of all, I am grateful that when killings and retaliation broke out, that none of you participated. There was no one in my church who killed someone over this. I am grateful. The second thing I'm grateful for today is they did not burn down my church. Everybody's like, excuse me, pastor. They did burn down the church. That's why we're sitting here. He said, no, they burned down my building. They did not burn down my church. And he said, the third thing I am grateful for today is that they burned down my house. Because he said, if they burned down your house and they hadn't burned down mine, how would I as a pastor know how to help you through that? And I thought, that is a pastor. That is a Christian. That is a person who has taken deep into his soul these words of the Apostle Peter speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that when persecution, hostility, oppression, or resistance comes, there is no retaliation and there is no fear. 